Well, 1 Samuel chapter 21, I want to tell you something that uh, may surprise you here just right off the bat. Do you know what is the biggest structure ever built in New York City? New York City is a pretty big city, and there is one structure, a single structure, continuous, unbroken, that is far bigger than anything else ever built in New York City. Do you know what it is? I bet most of you couldn't guess it in 100 years. Uh, Most people in New York couldn't guess it in 100 years, but I'll tell you what it is. It is a piece of fishing line. It's 200-pound test monofilament clear fishing line. It circles 95% of New York City. Uh, I don't know if you know New York City well, but uh, it goes uh, a rectangle uh, from Staten Island all the way in the south end, all the way past Columbia University to 145th Street. We can show you a map of New York City, and everything except the yellow is inside this fishing line loop. Uh, The loop is 20 miles long. Every inch of it is inspected every single week without exception. Now, do you know what that fishing line is for? Is it a communication system? Is it national security? Is it modern art? Is it just where the city keeps its extra fishing line? This fishing line is there because of something the Bible says in Exodus chapter 16, verse 29. There is a law that God gave the Jewish people living at that time uh, that says that on the Sabbath, they were to stay home. It's just that simple. On the Sabbath, stay home. Well, as, uh, as, as things go, people didn't want to stay home on the Sabbath, And so the rabbis of old came up with a way to trick God, a loophole, if you will, to allow them to leave home on the Sabbath. And it started by them connecting their home with the home next door with a string. And that made it just one home. So then you could go to your neighbor's house. Well, then... They thought, well, they'd connect three homes and four homes and five homes. And today, they connect the entire city of New York with a 200-pound monofilament fishing line so that if you're an Orthodox Jew in New York City, you can pretty much go wherever you want to go on on the Sabbath. Uh, If you think that's a long fishing line, there is an even longer one in Los Angeles. Uh, where there is a uh, circle around much of that city as well. Now, what do you think about that? Uh, For those Jews, uh, this is their spirituality. Uh, Largely, their spiritual lives are about finding some technical way, some loophole Uh, to trick God and to obey some commands that they think have been given to them. Uh, Their faith, by all appearances, is centered on keeping a rule, even if they do it in some silly, sneaky way. 
Now, I don't mean to be critical, but I think it's fair to say that if your faith is characterized by that, you've missed the point of honoring the Lord. Well, that raises the question, have you and I, in our brand of Christian faith, have we too missed the point of what it means to love and to honor the Lord? Uh, We do Christianity differently than those Orthodox Jews in New York or Los Angeles But could it be that we are focused on things just as silly instead of focusing on the things of God? Well, I want to answer that question Uh, today. We're in this series of messages, Royal Mess, Life Lessons from Flawed Leaders, and we're studying 1st and 2nd Samuel. And we come to a story, 1st Samuel chapter 21, a story that often is ignored because it doesn't seem very significant. But its significance is this. Jesus preached a message on this passage. That makes it significant, right? But it also makes it a challenge. I'm not going to preach a message on a passage where Jesus has already preached a message, okay? I'm uh, smarter than that. Uh, So what I want us to do is to look at this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And then I want us to look at what Jesus said. I want us to look at the message that Jesus preached on this passage. And when we do that, we're going to find that Jesus actually said that the very heart of the message of this passage is found in the book of Hosea when Hosea preached on this subject. And so we're going to bounce around a little bit today. Uh, it, It won't be nearly as complex as it sounds. This will be a very, very simple message. But I want us to learn what should be the heart of our Christian faith. What is it that we should really be, really be focused on. So let's just begin. First Samuel chapter 21 begins, David went to the priest uh, Ahimelech at Nob. That's where the tabernacle was at the time. And Ahimelech was afraid to meet David. So he said to him, why are you alone? And no one is with you. Now, if you remember from last week, Saul is the king. Jonathan is his son. David is on the run because the king, Saul, has decided in his anger, in his resentment, that he wants to kill David. And so David and a few men who are with him are are, are on the run. And at this point, they have run out of food. And so they're near this city, the city of Nob, where the tabernacle was. And David's going to go and see if he can get some food from the priest's who are there in the city. Look at verse two. David answered the priest, Ahimelech, the king gave me a mission, but he told me, don't let anyone know about the mission I am sending you on or what I have ordered you to do. I have stationed my young men at a certain place. Now, two ways to understand what David said, but I think it's fair to say David just lied through his teeth. Uh, The king had not sent him on a mission, at least not King Saul, uh, perhaps King God, but he's talking about Saul here and he just lies about it. Uh, This lie, by the way, ends up costing the priest and his family their lives. A few chapters later, we'll we'll see soon. Look at verse three. Uh, Now, what do you have on hand? 
Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. So the priest told him, there is no ordinary bread on hand. However, there is consecrated bread. But the young men uh, may eat it only if they have kept themselves from women. As it turns out, they had this bread, and other parts of the Bible give us a little more information about this. It was the bread of the present. It was the show bread. It was used in their worship of God at the tabernacle. And there were very specific instructions about this. The bread, when they had finished using it for worship, could only be consumed by the priest, nobody else. Uh, Well, the Bible says a chapter later that this priest consulted the Lord and the Lord gave him permission to give it to David. So David takes the bread, takes it to his people. That seems like a story without a lot of significance, except that in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus preached on the story. And so turn with me, the New Testament, Matthew chapter 12, and I want you to see what Jesus what Jesus had to say. Matthew 12, verse 1, at that time Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, see your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. So Jesus, the disciples, they're walking through some fields. The disciples pick some grain. So this would have been late March, early April, and they eat the grain The Pharisees, who were these Jewish religious leaders, observed this and said that those disciples were breaking the law of God. Now, uh, the Pharisees were not accurate in their uh, condemnation of the disciples. Uh, There was an Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 23, 25, that said that those Jews were not allowed to harvest on the Sabbath in an attempt to make money. You had to close your business down on the Sabbath. That was uh, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And there was a specific law that said, I'm sorry, I gave you the wrong reference, Exodus 3421. There was a specific law that said that they could not do that on the Sabbath. But these men were not doing that on the Sabbath. They were just getting a snack. And the Bible explicitly gave them permission to do that. That's the scripture passage, Deuteronomy 23, 25. So how could the Pharisees say that these men were violating the law? Well, this is important. The the Pharisees and the rabbis, the teachers of old, had taken the laws of God, the laws that God had clearly given, that are in our Bibles, and they had expanded on these laws. They would take a law, and then they would write along with that law a bunch of other laws. They put it in a book they called the Talmud, and all of these laws would expand upon the original law that God gave. And some of these laws, and there are hundreds of them, some of these laws are unusual. I'll share a few of them. On the Sabbath, you could toss an object in the air and catch it with your same hand. But if you tossed an object in the air and you caught it with your other hand, now you have transferred an object and it's work and you're guilty of breaking the law. You could not take a 
a bath on the Sabbath. Because when you get out of the bath and you drip water on the floor, you would be guilty of washing the floor. And so no bath on the Sabbath. You could not tie a knot on the Sabbath unless it was a woman's girdle. So if a man wanted to tie two things together, guess what he used? (laughs) He used his wife's girdle because it was permitted. That was not considered work. So they came up with all of these laws that uh, limited uh, what they could do on the Sabbath. And uh, back to the string around New York City, one of the rules that they came up with is that you could only go 3,000 feet from your, uh, from your home, from your house, you know, unless you tied all the houses together and then you could go as far as, uh, as you wanted to. Now, let, that's what they did and you likely knew that. But the question that we should ask is, why would these Pharisees do that? Why did they come up with all these crazy laws? Well, it was not a sinister thing. When they came up with these laws, they had uh, the best of intentions, at least in the beginning. What they were doing was establishing guardrails. And so God would give a command and they they would expand on it just to make sure you didn't get anywhere close to breaking the law. Does that make sense? And so if you're, if you're traveling down the road, if you've ever taught your kids to drive, uh, you know that, you know, there is a white line on the side of the road that you're not supposed to cross. But what do you tell your kids? You don't even get close to that line, right? We want to, we want a buffer there. We, we want to know that this is the standard. So we pull back a little bit from it. We provide some guardrails. Uh, now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it, it, it's both. It, 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 is, it is both a good thing and a bad thing. It, it's a good thing in that we should all do that. I, I have some guardrails in my life. Uh, there are certain places I wouldn't go. There, there are certain activities I don't get involved in. And I have a commitment to those things. Here amongst our staff, we have a commitment that we're not going to do certain things as ministers that aren't listed in the Bible Uh, But some other things are listed in the Bible. And so we've created some guardrails to keep us from even getting close to some of the things that, that uh, that might lead to some grave sin. So in that sense, having guardrails is good. Now, it's not good if you hold somebody else to your guardrails. No, we can only... Uh, place upon other people the word of God. But it's good to have guardrails in our lives. But there's a big problem with that. There's a big problem with guardrails. We must not turn our faith into just keeping a list of rules. That's the great danger. And that's what happened here. Now, you'll see that. Let's continue to read in Matthew 12. Verse 3 says, he, he said to them, haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry, how he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of presence, uh, which is not lawful for him or those with him to eat, but only for the priests. And so here it is. Jesus is, is preaching on the passage we read in 1 Samuel 21. And Jesus isn't condoning breaking the commands. 
What he's doing is he's pointing out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and is showing them how unhelpful it is to boil all of religion down to just keeping a list of rules and ignoring what it means to love God and to love people. Now, let's continue to read verse 5. Jesus said, Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? Uh, So on the Sabbath, people didn't work, but one group of people worked. Who were those? The priests. They had to work. It was their work day. Uh, What Jesus is saying here is that there's there's more to this than just this simple, accusative, judgmental legalism. And then in the next verse, he gets right to the point. Verse 6, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. What does he mean? Well, they loved the temple, and they couldn't think of anything greater than the temple. But there was one thing greater than the temple. What was that? God. And what he's saying here, and we'll see him expound on it in the next verse, he's saying that there is something greater than the things of God. God. Now, it seems very simple, but hold on to that because because this is the basis of what we're trying to learn today. There are things greater, there is something greater than the things of God. God. There's something greater than God's rules. What's greater than God's rules? God. There's something greater than God's church. God. There's something greater than God's Bible. God. If our focus is on the things of God instead of on God, then we're focusing on the wrong thing. That's what Jesus is saying. And then look at verse 7. He says, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's a quote from Hosea 6. You would not have condemned the innocent. Now, when Jesus says, if you would have known what this means, what he, what he was saying is, guys, you've missed the point. You've missed the whole point of what it means to, to be in a relationship with God. But then he says, he quotes Hosea 6.6, and I want to give you the actual verse, and uh, it's a short verse, you don't have to turn there, but in Hosea 6.6 it says, it's God speaking through the prophet, I desire faithful love, not sacrifice. I desire faithful love, not sacrifice. Now what does that mean? Well, there are two things that God could desire. One of those things is sacrifice. God could say, I desire sacrifice, meaning I desire religious activities. My greatest desire is that you keep the rules. My greatest desire is that you go to church. My greatest desire is that you read your Bible. My greatest desire, sacrifice, which meant for them religious activities. But God says, no, 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 no. That's not what I desire. What I desire is faithful love. What I desire is that you will love me, that you will love God, that you have an affection for the Lord. See, the Pharisees, these religious leaders that Jesus criticized, they loved the law. They loved the Bible. They loved the temple. But Jesus is saying a true follower of Christ loves the Lord. Now, I want to draw all this together by just asking and answering three quick questions. Uh, question number one, what's the difference between a Pharisee and a faithful Christian? 
So we read about these Pharisees that the Lord condemns. Uh, what's the difference? What's the difference? Uh, well, a Pharisee was really good at keeping the rules. Probably a whole lot better than any of us. A Pharisee never cursed. A Pharisee always paid his bills. A Pharisee always told the truth. He was always faithful to his wife. He was never violent. He went to church, uh, as it was in those days. And he always studied God's word. That's pretty good, right? But here are the problems with the Pharisee. The Pharisee loved the law more than he loved God. A Pharisee loved the practice of religion more than the person of the Lord. For him, religion is more about what man did than it was about who God was. What if I told you that uh, over the holidays, I performed a cost-benefit analysis on my marriage? Took out some paper and I began to write down all of the ways that my wife is uh, a value add to me. All the ways that she is a blessing to me. All the kindness that she shows me. And so I wrote down all of that, all the ways that my wife is a benefit. And then I figured up what it would cost just to hire somebody to do that. What if I just had a service, you know, a subscription service, or I hired a person to come in and, and do all the things on that list? What if I told you that it turns out that it would cost less money and it would create much less stress just to hire somebody to do those things? And... I did the calculations backwards. I figured it would be better for her to hire somebody to do whatever I do than it would be for her to have to put up with me. So that we're imagining. My wife's not here today. She's out of town. <laughs> That's my cost-benefit analysis. We'd be better off just splitting up and hiring some people. So what should we do? What's your advice? Well, I'm hoping you would say we should not split up because marriage is about more than just accomplishing some tasks and completing some chores, right? Marriage is about loving your spouse and wanting to be present with her, wanting to honor her, wanting to cherish her. I'm not with my wife because it's financially beneficial, okay, or vice versa. I'm with my wife because I love, honor, and cherish her. You see, the Pharisees had reduced religion down to just a bunch of rules, tasks, chores, and practices, and they had missed the point. That's why Jesus said, I will tell you that there's something greater than the temple. There is something greater than the things of God and the law of God, and that's God. Now, the second question. So then what are the chief characteristics of a Christian? What, what, what's a Christian like? Well, a Christian loves the Lord. That's the most important thing about a Christian is that we love the Lord. Now, what does it mean to love? What does it mean to love the Lord? What does it mean to love anybody? 
Well, to love means, first of all, we desire to be in that person's presence. We just, we just want to be with them. My wife's been gone this week. And it wasn't that I needed my wife to do anything for me this week, although I probably did. Um, but I've just missed her because she's not there. See, love means you desire to be in somebody's presence. Love means that you desire to please somebody. Love means that you desire to honor somebody before others. So what most characterizes a Christian is that we love the Lord. We desire to be in his presence. We desire to please him and to honor him before other people. That's why Jesus then quoted Hosea 6.6. I desire faithful love, not sacrifice. It's not the religious practices. It's not the rules. It's not the exercises. It's not the services. It's love that I desire. Listen to how Jesus says it in Matthew 12.33. This will seem like a familiar verse, and and it will be, but the end of it is what I want you to see. It is a twist. Jesus says we are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our understanding, with all of our strength. Have you heard that before? And to love your neighbor as yourself. Heard that before? But listen to the end of it. Because it is far more important than all the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. What was Jesus saying? I want you to love me. That's far better than all the rule stuff. I want you to love me. You know, we face the same temptation that the Pharisees did. It's easy for us to turn our faith into just a formula, into a list of tasks, exercises, rules. It's easy for a Christian faith, listen please, to just be a moral code. I do this and I don't do that. For it just to be a ritual, I go to church every Sunday. Just to be a routine. It's not that a Christians shouldn't obey the rules. We should obey the rules. But our obedience ought to be a reflection of our love. You see what I mean? The point is not obedience. The point is, I love God. Therefore, I want to please him. Jesus says, loving God is far more important than all the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. Let me give you a question three very quickly. How do we amplify our affections for the Lord? So how can we love, how can we love the Lord more? Well, I don't know. I mean, that's hard. How do you love your wife more? If you don't love your wife enough, how can I, pastor, how can I have more love for my wife? And I, you know, I, I, I have things I can say. I'm a preacher. I always have something to say, but, but that's a hard question to answer. You know, how do you, how do you have love? Um, but I'll leave you with what Jesus said. Revelation chapter two, uh, the end of one verse, the beginning of the other. So it's really one verse. Listen to this. You have abandoned the love you had at first. He says, you don't love me like you did. And he gives the, the remedy. He says, remember then how far you have fallen. So remember, repent. Tell God you're sorry that you've made it about a bunch of things to do and then do the things you did at the first. Listen, I, 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 want, I want to ask everybody to stand, if you will. I want us to sing a song to the Lord. I want that to be our focus.
And my hope is that this would be our response, not to say, God, I'm going to read my Bible more, follow the rules better, be more consistent in church. I mean, all those things are good things, but those are secondary. You understand? I want this to be our response saying, God, I'm going to love you more. I want to love you more. And then all those other things will happen. And so you'll see these words on the screen. Uh, you sing with me the best, uh, the best we can. Can we do that? of things, not just a routine. Father, we want to love you with our hearts. We want a desire to be in your presence, to please you, to honor you. Increase in us a love and an affection for you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Tom. <laughs> 